0: The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Welcome to The Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. Recent events have proven that democracy can't be taken for granted. If you have it, it should be cherished and utilised to its fullest extent. The same can be said for our investments. More of us than ever before are now owners of shares in companies. Whether we realise it or not, we are part owners in businesses, either through funds and pensions, or because we actively invest in individual stocks and shares. With that ownership, comes certain rights, like voting and having a say in how a company should be run. Yet many of us either aren't aware or we eschew our democratic rights when it comes to our investments. In this episode, Merrin Somerset Webb, a journalist and author, talks about share power and how ordinary people can change the way that capitalism works. In it, we briefly touch on some UK-specific topics, including auto-enrolment, which is the policy of auto-enrolling almost every new employee into their company pension. ISAs, or Individual Savings Accounts, are also mentioned. These are investment vehicles that allow people in the UK to invest up to £20,000 a year into shares and enjoy tax-free status on any profits. Apart from that, the themes we cover are relevant to investors the world over. We hope it creates a debate and gets everyone thinking about and becoming more proactive with their investments. We hope you enjoy it. Okay, so on today's show, we have Merrin Somerset-Webb. Merrin's the editor-in-chief of UK personal finance magazine Money Week, writes for the Financial Times and Saga magazine. She's also a radio and television commentator and podcaster on financial matters. And Marin's also a non-executive director of Three Investment Trusts. Merrin, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: And did I miss anything?
1: Uh, I don't think so, but you added one thing <laughs> extra. I have actually retired from writing from Saga magazine. I know it sounds odd to retire from Saga, but, but I've been <laughs> for, uh, I think 25 years and it was time to, time to stand down.
0: You are prim- primarily well-known at the moment for all your journalism and obviously the book you've come out with. But can you just take <laughs> us briefly back to where it all started? What career did you have before that?
1: Before that, I was a stockbroker. Oh, wow. uh, I worked as a Japanese institutional equity broker out of Tokyo for um, some years until my uh, mid-20s. And then came back to the UK, did it here for a few years. Um, And then... um, went to write uh, the city pages for a magazine called the week which lots of uh, uk people will get on subscription and from there I uh, decided to launch money week 22 years ago now uh launched money week with uh, john connell who was the original founder of of the week um which was insane at the time i didn't know anything about publishing anything about journalism anything about managing teams uh, anything like that at all so it was a completely absurd decision but
0: you know worked out in the end <laughs> That's amazing. So were you um, in Japan around the time of the banking crisis? Yeah. And how was that? In fact, just
1: after it. I And this is quite interesting and maybe something we should all bear in mind uh, at the moment, actually. I arrived in Japan to start work. Well, I'd been in Japan before, actually. I'd, I'd uh, uh, done some of my Japanese language education in Japan. I'd worked for NHK briefly and I taught at a university in Nagoya briefly. Um, So I had been in Japan during that time, but I came to work in Japan as a broker in uh, 1992, I think, initially. And uh, that was a point when the market had obviously had a phenomenal crash and everybody believed that things would go back to the way they had been. So there was absolutely no expectation of any kind that there was a multi-decade bear market ahead. And when I entered the market, Everyone said to me, and I particularly remember my boss, who I think had better go nameless at this point, saying to me, you have the most fabulous opportunity ahead of you. There aren't young people coming in at the moment because because of the crash, but mm, any day now, this market's going to fly again, and we're going to be back where we were, and you are going to make so much money. And boy, that was so exciting. Right. And of course, it did not happen at all. Never made a penny. Uh, And the Japanese market, as you know, then entered, stayed in a, a really unpleasant bear market for some time. The interesting point being that the psychology was not something's changed here. Stuff that was really expensive is going back to the right price. And there we are. The psychology was the old situation was normal. And that's where we're going back to.
0: Yeah, and that sort of went straight into the Asian financial crisis, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was there for that. I remember as a you know a young broker standing there and on the trading floor watching the screens just turn red and stay red. It's a you know a shocking memory.
0: Okay, so you've written a book. It's called Share Power: How Ordinary People Can Change the Way That Capitalism, Capitalism Works and Make Money. Can you just give us a brief synopsis of what the book's about and the problem uh, we're trying to solve here?
1: Yes. I mean, what we've just talked about is a period of my career where I was in the institutional markets. And then, you know, 22 years ago or so, when I shifted to Money Week, I effectively became the sort of representative or champion of the retail investors. So I started to see markets from a completely different side. And one of the extraordinary things about today's stock markets is that pretty much all of us in the UK who are in work Own equities one way or another. It was an amazing, exciting, and huge change from 30, 40 years ago. So, back in the 60s, uh, around 3% of the population owned shares. They owned a lot of shares. 30, 40% of the market was owned by individuals, but only a very small percentage of people owned any shares at all. Here we are today, and one way or another, if you're in work, you probably own some equities because you've got an auto enrollment pension automatically put into a pension wrapper you're automatically having your money invested for you and particularly if you're young that money is automatically going into equities at the same time you know three million people ought to have stocks and shares isis and a lot of people will have uh, self-invested personal f- pensions and outside that of course people will also own equities outside of the various uh, tax wrappers that we offer in the uk so we've got a situation which is kind of amazing you know the um Limited liability listed company is one of the greatest innovations of all time. It's one of the things that's driven most of the innovations that have made us all all rich over the last couple of hundred years. And the idea that we're now a point where everybody has a stake in that, holds investments in these companies is absolutely fantastic. However, the problem with it is that while we are all owners... A, a, lot of us do not know we are owners, so the majority of people survey after survey shows do not know that having a pension means owning equities, being a shareholder, being a stakeholder in our, our economy. And even if you do know, you don't have the ability to use the power that being an owner should come with. So we're all owners, but the rights of our ownership don't rest with us anymore. One share, one vote... But all those votes in the main rest with the big fund managers because we own our shares via big funds. And so those funds have taken our delegated authority and the fund managers use our votes. So we should have power over the way companies are run, over the way the economy is run, because remember, companies make up an economy, but we don't. You know, the pension system is complicated. And for the majority of people, particularly young people, there's a lot going on in life, right? There is a lot going on. And the idea of of investigating properly what your pension actually is and what it means, it's not top of your list. It's not top of your list. However, given the priorities that people have, ESG issues, social justice issues, climate change issues, etc., all of which they're looking to big corporates uh, to help solve, they should understand that they have a stake in these big corporates and, and can change it. Now, let's say they did. Let's say we all knew that we had shares and that we had a stake in the corporate world and that we should be engaged with the way companies behave and we could be engaged with the way companies behave. What could we do now? If you hold individual equities, there is stuff you can do. You can go to the platform in which you hold your individual equities, and some of those platforms have done brilliantly in this area. So, Interactive Investor, for example, now ops everybody into using their shareholder rights. Other platforms you have to go to and you have to ask, Can I have my shareholder rights? Can I have a bit of paper that allows me to vote, etc.? It's all possible, but it's a bit admin heavy. But this is not the real problem. The real problem is the shares that we hold inside funds and in particular inside passively run funds where we have no way of actually getting to those shares and getting to those votes unless the fund managers come to us and offer them back to us which clearly hasn't happened yet so and the way forward at the moment is for the fund management community and uh, and also the companies, by the way, who should know who their end owners are, for those two entities to start to engage with the end investor to return our power to us. Will they do that voluntarily? Well, actually, I'm talking about it are talking about it, BlackRock, for example, has started to return uh, votes from to for, for, from their funds to institutions who hold those funds. So big fund manager gives power to other big fund managers, not quite what we were after. But they're also looking at ways to return some power to individual investors. And various other fund management companies are also already beginning to canvass the opinions of the individual investors. So, you know, the industry is aware that this problem exists, aware that they have an agency problem. It's simply a matter of finding uh, the will and the logistical ability to solve it.
0: On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to The Investor Download. Why do you think it's taken so long to get to this point where they actually start to acknowledge that individuals do still have rights when they own shares, even if it's through a fund?
1: I mean, it's been partly about uh, lack of interest. Uh, You know, this has sort of stumbled upon us, hasn't it? This this fact that over the last 20 years, uh, retail investors have suddenly become A, a very big part of the market, and B, a big part of the market via the fund management system. Uh, And if you look back, say, even 10, 15 years ago, the technology, maybe even 10 years ago, five years ago, the technology did not actually exist to go to every single one of the end owners of a fund and say, what is it that you want? What is it you want? You know, this has been incredibly logistically complicated. Imagine trying to do that with letters, tens of thousands of votes every year, writing to tens of thousands, millions of investors, and saying, How do you want us to behave on these tens of thousands of votes? It's simply not possible. Now, of course, it's incredibly easy because you can do it all, all via uh, the technology that we have. And there's also ways for fund managers to now ask investors on a group level. So uh, you can set up websites where you say, Well, here's your pension is what it means to have a pension. These are all the companies inside your pension. These are the issues that, that there are votes coming up on around uh, around things that you care about inside these companies. How would you vote? If you were able to vote, what would you say? Now, this is a kind of a thing that is not necessarily binding on fund managers, but which can definitely uh, educate their vote and educate their, their thoughts about how they might engage with companies. So we're in a totally different situation now in terms of technology than we were 5-10 years ago and also in a different situation in terms of the way people hold shares than we were 20 years ago.
0: You touched on it a little bit there. I mean, some of these uh, voting systems uh, can be so complicated and certainly the things that shareholders might need to vote on uh, can be complicated. I I sometimes liken it to the way that when people are voting for their government, you know the heads of the parties that you're voting for, you know some of their top level policies, but you don't know the whole thing. So how can we trust that when we're putting out that responsibility back to the individual shareholders, they know what they're voting on. They know the ins and outs of exactly what they're going to engage the company with. And what's the best way about going going about that?
1: I mean, let's just start by saying that uh, we trust people at elections. Uh, you know, you can argue and uh, people do argue that uh, elections are too complicated for most people. The issues are too complicated. They don't know enough about it. But they vote on a on a set of broad principles which they believe in. You can do exactly the same uh, with a fund management business. So, for example, you know, if a fund manager, when you invest in, in a fund, can say, you know, on a broad level, how do you feel about all this stuff? And on another level, you know, we're, we're telling you that this website exists and you can go there every six months or however old it is. And you can have a look at the issues coming up and you can look at the information around it. Because, you know, it's just an educational thing. You're absolutely right. But fund managers should step up to the plate there as well, educate their investors about what the issues are. So, you know, this is this vote is coming up on, say, let's say let's say remuneration. This is something that I don't think you need particularly large amount of education uh, about to look at a vote coming up and saying, do I want to say yes? to this manager of a company, uh, manager, uh, not entrepreneur, not founder, and uh, put in place a system whereby they could change the uh, financial fortunes of their family for generations to come by working for two years. Yes or no. Uh, you know, that's not complicated. And that's something that retail investors would really, really like to have to have a say over. So some things that are very straightforward. And then, as you say, there are other things that are more nuanced and more complicated and maybe might require a little, a little more information around them. But, you know, the fact that there are educational and occasionally practical issues is not an excuse to not have a go.
0: And and how would they manage a situation where potentially the uh, investors may have a slightly different view from what? Perhaps the uh, fund or the institution has when they're trying to have a conversation with the company themselves.
1: Well, again, that's exactly what I was talking about earlier, which is that you, you there you know, is an ability to ask end investors for their actual view and then to take that into account when you're engaging with the company. And what is really important for fund managers to remember is that they do not own these shares, they are not the end beneficiaries. Uh, the retail investor is the end beneficiary, and we have to move away. From when we talk about the shareholder. When we talk about shareholders, we almost always mean institutional shareholders. And so the companies, by the way, when they talk about the shareholders, they tend to be referring to the institutions. Now, the institutions do not own these shares. They might own them in some kind of technical platform way, but we are the final owners. And in the end, what we think should matter more.
0: We were talking earlier that you're a non executive director on uh, three investment trusts. Have you had? Some of the investors for the investment trust that you work for, have they come to you expressing their wishes to be able to vote on individual uh, company matters as well?
1: Well, interestingly, uh, um, I mean, yes, not often, but yes. But interestingly, the investment trust sector is is really ahead of the game on this uh, in that there's been a huge rise in the percentage of individual retail investors in investment trusts over the last couple of years. So it used to be that it was very much an institutional playground, but now there's a a, a much higher level of retail investor interest in the investment trust world and that has meant that investment trusts have put an awful lot of effort into engaging with retail investors into making AGMs more friendly into making uh, uh, annual reports more friendly into finding different ways to try and communicate directly with retail investors bypassing the platform so actually to in a sense the investment trusts are are slightly leading the way here Uh, but of course that doesn't help us uh, with getting to the retail investors who might hold trusts or other shares via funds. That's a much more complicated business from the company's point of view. One of the things that I was suggesting in our conversation earlier is be a great way to to start kicking off this uh, new relationship between retail investors, fund managers, and companies would to give a non-executive on every listed company board a responsibility for engagement with the retail investor. And so, uh, you know, when they talk about investor relations, they stop talking about uh, uh, calling the big fund management companies and they start talking about how they can get information directly to their end owners, to their shareholders. And that, I think, will very quickly filter through to the fund management companies and could be something of a game
0: changer. Sounds like your workload's going to increase on the back of that. <laughs>
1: possibly. <laughs> possibly, but my workload always just increases. <laughs>
0: get In touch with us by email
1: at shoulderspodcasts at com, or visit our website com forward slash investor download.
0: So, a lot of your books about um shareholders taking some ownership, uh, shareholder democracy, and you also talk about stakeholders as well. Mm-hmm. Can you just give a a brief explanation what the difference is between uh, stakeholder and shareholder democracy slash activism. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure where the divide comes between those two.
1: Well, I would say we spend a lot of time making an artificial divide here. Uh, you know, there's been uh... Uh, a rise recently to discuss stakeholder capitalism as somehow superior to shareholder capitalism. Shareholder capitalism being the idea that if you give, you know, a, a big company has a, a huge, a hugely diverse group of shareholders in the main uh, who may all want uh, a variety of different things, but in the main, there's one thing that they all want, and that's profits. They want dividends. They invested so that you uh, made something good or created a good service, sold that good or service, uh, made money, returned a percentage of that money to shareholders and invested the remains of the money into the business to improve uh, returns going forward. That's what everybody wants as the base, base requirement from investing. So the idea of shareholder capitalism is that you simply ask management to focus on that, leave everything else out, focus on that. And we're all good. Stakeholder capitalism says, "Do you know what, that's not enough. That's not enough. You can't just focus on profits because in the focus on profits, you might not be nice to customers or to suppliers or to your local community, et cetera, to the variety of other groups of people who are reliant on a big company one way or another. Now, I would say this is a completely false division, particularly today. So it's a false division because if you want to create long-term profits in a company, if you want a long-term sustainable flow of income from a corporate, you need that company to be nice to its customers, to be nice to its suppliers, to have reasonable relationships with the community around it, etc. So all these things are part and parcel of making long term profits. You cannot separate them. And to pretend, you, pretend that you can is, is just a bit silly. Now, the second reason why this is a false division is because in the UK in particular at the moment, as I said earlier, some 75 percent of people in work own shares. And an awful lot of people own shares in other ways. So if you are a shareholder, you are also a customer. You are also an employee. You're also a member of the community around any particular company. The shareholder and the stakeholder are the same thing. So this division is is increasingly artificial would be my core view on this. I,
0: I would argue though, that perhaps a shareholder might be more interested in shorter term profit margins than they might do in the longer term, perhaps societal or environmental or governmental uh, gain. I mean, mm. how how would how do we change? It? How do we get that message through to shareholders? Just like you were saying, that it is one and the same thing. If you take into account the fact that you are a stakeholder and looking at long term, those profits will eventually deliver. When everyone always thinks, "I want things now," rather than maybe perhaps four, five, ten years down the line.
1: Mm. Well, I think there's possibly a a misunderstanding of the way that people invest these days in that most people don't want something right now from their investments. Maybe they already retired do. But remember that people saving in the UK into an auto-enrolment pension are saving for a pension. They're not saving to buy something tomorrow. This is a 20, 30, 40, 50 year investment profile. So the long-term bias already exists. Now, the other thing I would say to that is that I also think people get confused about the extent to which stakeholder capitalism can manage the big issues in society. So I've just talked about the similarities between the shareholder and the stakeholder. It is not necessarily uh, the stakeholder or the shareholder who should be the one who sets, for example, uh, rules around uh, social justice operations in companies or around environmental regulation or around things to do with climate change, etc., These are big macro issues that have to be dealt with at a government level, not at a corporate level. So it is a government that should set the parameters inside which we behave on those things, uh, not stakeholders and not necessarily shareholders either. They're different, big society issues. So... I think once we get to the point where we're asking companies, we're saying to them, you know, social justice is your problem, climate change is your problem, the environment is your problem, you have to figure out how to deal with this yourself. We're asking way too much of corporates. Their job, as I said before, is to create goods, create services, and uh, find a way to deliver those goods and services required by communities to those communities. It's not to figure out how to deal with these vast issues, it's to follow the rules. That will help deal with those vast issues, but it's not set the parameters for them. Those are those things are the jobs of elected governments. So we mustn't ask too much of companies and we mustn't use stakeholder capitalism as a kind of fig leaf for the failure of governments to behave well.
0: Okay, and you were just started to touch on some of the ways we might go about fixing what's wrong. What other suggestions do you have in terms of trying to get this balance? back towards what it should be, a shareholder democracy?
1: Yeah, well, I think the, the first thing is, as I said, to to, to provide a, a non-executive director inside each company with the responsibility for this and to let that feed through to the fund management companies. Um, the second thing, and I think the key thing, is just for, for us to know that we have these votes and for us to use them where we can, to use them where we can as individual investors and to attempt to get our ideas across the fund managers and everyone can sit down today and write to their fund manager and say I know there are other fund managers who are using these systems to ask me what it is that I want and I want you to do it too um, and if you're not going to do it I want to know why these are very simple things we can do to push things forward um other things we can do to make shareholding more interesting, more attractive, you know, we must make absolutely certain that the physical AGM continues and that from now on we see a hybrid AGMs, both physical and Zoom at the same time, or not necessarily Zoom, whatever it is, so that people from everywhere can come and participate, uh, possibly bring back um, shareholder perks, that kind of thing, uh, to re-engage people with capitalism um, and an education policy around that that makes people aware of what they have. Um, Outside that, a very important thing we need to do is to make sure that companies continue to list. And one of the problems that we've had over the last decade or so is a fall in the number of companies listed uh, in, in all the markets around the world, actually, not just in the UK and the US as well. Um, so, companies have been taken off market by private equity, they come to market later because they can get money much much more easily than they used to be able to off market, thanks. The so very loose uh, monetary environment. Also, of course, there's been a lot of M&A. So, the numbers of companies that are listed and that are available for us to buy and engage with have fallen. And that is a very bad thing, in that if we want to have a very active shareholder democracy, when people feel engaged with companies, we need to have companies coming to market and listing so that we can engage with them and also so that we can uh, participate in the money made from their growth. So it's important to encourage companies to come back to market that may involve them. Um, Reducing levels of regulation, it may involve changing the way that uh, founders who bring their companies to market can hold shares after they're listed, etc. So that's a very important part of it. Making sure that companies keep being listed is one side and making sure that retail investors have various paths to engage with those companies is the other.
0: I just pick up on the private investment side of things. I think private investors might argue that um, they have uh, a greater influence on company management, certainly with companies that need turning around if, certainly at the start, the company remains private, hence the reason that's where they earn all their money and their higher yields. What would you say is an argument against that? Because once you get a lot of shareholders involved, then that change suddenly becomes a lot slower and a lot more difficult.
1: Hmm. Well, and there's always going to be a role for private equity, always going to be a role for people who believe they can take companies off market and improve them. Um, But we're looking at something much wider here. What we're really looking at is companies not listing, uh, not coming to market because it's there's too much regulation involved because it feels too onerous and because they can get money too easily off market. So, you know, should there be a way, for example, of putting in place uh, uh, tax breaks for companies that list, uh, changing the way entrepreneurial uh, relief works? For um, founders that bring their companies to market at a reasonably early stage, et cetera. And there are lots of ways to incentivize this, to incentivize companies to want to work on the listed market rather than on the private market.
0: I just saw another thing that I just picked up on there. You were talking about uh, individual investors, you know, writing to companies, uh, taking uh, responsibility into their own house. I would suspect a lot of people, uh, myself included, have investments in funds rather than individual companies. And I'm not entirely sure everyone knows what's in the fund that they're investing in. What, what would you say to people like me who want to take greater control uh, of the situation but don't know exactly what they're invested in?
1: Well, you can find out what you're invested in quite easily. You know, the fund,
0: um, uh,
1: you know, if you find your your latest pension statement, it'll tell you which fund you're invested in. And you can then go to the website and have a look. Now, you may find that when you get there, all it says is you own this fund. Right. Now, if you want to get more engaged in that, remember that you can change the fund in almost all. um almost auto-enroll in pensions, you do have the choice to move out of that fund into another fund. So you can do that, see something that that you have more transparency over. But another way is just, as I say, to then call whichever fund manager it is, uh, write to them, call them and say, you know, this isn't what I want. I want to know exactly what's in this. And I want to be able to have some as some say over how you use the shares that I own, you know, it's, it, it starts off with pressure. It starts off with pressure. As I said before, I think a lot of the fund managers are definitely beginning to get it, beginning to realise that they need to uh, Engage with the retail investor more. I and mean, this is the future, right? The retail investor. um Here we are. We understand the power that we have now that we're obliged to finance our own pensions, and we're beginning to. And fund managers are beginning to recognise that as well. You know, there's a, a, a great little company called tumelo which works with some of the UK's fund managers to do exactly this. So you can go to their site, as I say, and you can look and see exactly which companies are in your pension, what those companies do and how you might be able to influence their behavior going forward. So, you know, there are there are loads of ways to do this now. We're a long way, I'm afraid, from the bit where you get a genuine look through vote uh, with every holding that you have, but we're getting closer and closer to the bit where you can offer your non-binding views to the fund management companies that they can use to educate their votes as they go.
0: Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, check out our website, schroders.com forward slash The Investor Download. You can also get in contact with us about anything in the show or ideas for future shows at schroderspodcasts at schroders.com. Please remember to subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We're now doing one show a week, which will be available every Thursday from 5pm UK time. Thanks very much for listening, but above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers.